What is Stuff Plus? How to value pitchers with risk. Effects of the new rules on pitchers. A discussion about Shohei Otani. And much, much more. Eno Saris of The Athletic joins us for part two of our starting pitcher preview next on Beat the Shift. And welcome to another episode of the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangraphs. I am your host, Ariel Cohen, and with me as always is Ruven Guy. How are you, Ruven? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. Spring training games are underway now, and it's time for us to continue our starting pitcher preview. We had on Nick Pollock last week, and tonight we have a great guest. Just won the FSWA Podcast of the Year Award once again. Welcome to Eno Saris. How are you? Mm, thanks for having me on. I think uh, I helped you guys uh, launch this one. Was I one of your first guests on, on this podcast? And you, you, were, first, you were our first, first guest ever. Yeah, and uh, uh, helped uh, Paul Spore uh, launch Speed from the Bus. So it's uh, it's all in the family. And, and you know, my first FSWA award was um, was actually how I got my foot in the door at Fangraphs. So uh, I, I owe everything to Fangraphs. Uh, and David Appleman, and uh, you guys are always like family. Same here, and uh, you're one of the reasons that ATC got on Fangraphs in the first place, so uh, there you go. Well, you did the work. (laughs) There you go. Thanks again for that. All right, so let's jump into our starting pitcher preview, and do have to talk about your Pitching Plus model. You got Stuff Plus, Location Plus. I know you use them quite a lot in in how you describe pitchers, but for most of us here who – don't know what it is exactly maybe you can just start by explaining what it is how you assemble them and how we should really look at them Uh, stuff plus tries to just assess the physical properties of a pitcher's pitches so uh using things like velocity spin rate uh you know uh arm angle through release point um you know just trying to look at only the physical properties of the pitches and 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 assess the sort of quality of stuff uh, to that and it has a widespread i mean it, it, that that number uh has a widespread that uh goes all the way from uh something like a matt brash power slider 90 miles an hour with you know two plane movement um all the way down to uh i don't know i don't want to name anybody but you're one of your worst sort of uh 80 poo sinkers that are out there so um, you know, the, that's, that has a large spread that stuff. Plus location plus just assesses the relative quality of the pitch at the plate. Um, and so the locations that the pitchers throws to now, what's really interesting is that on the per pitch level, location plus is more important than stuff plus for outcomes. So basically on a single pitch, the location of that pitch means more than the movement of the pitch on the way to that location. However, the spread in Location Plus is not large, and uh, that means our model appraises that there is not a large spread in true talent command in, in baseball, um, and that, that from pitch to pitch and pitcher to pitcher and year to year, there is not a lot of stickiness to their ability to command the ball. And I think that 
tracks with a lot of the things we've seen in baseball, how teams uh, have spent more on stuff plus is something I've found. And you, and just uh, what we've seen in baseball in terms of the strikeout rate going up and teams chasing velo and t- chasing certain shapes on pitches. So uh, that's the, the, the core model. And then we added this year some projections, which are really important because you've got to park adjust, you've got to age adjust, you know projections. I think projections are superior to a one number in all cases. Um, and so taking our number with Jordan Rosenblum and sticking them into a projection system uh, was uh, a revelation for me this year. Yeah, and what I like about this kind of model is it looks at baseball on the event level. I was talking with this about with, uh, to Nick Pollock uh, that, you know, before we used to look at, you know, the at-bat. What is your strikeout rate? What is your walk rate, right? This is a finer level of detail than that, and as a math guy— uh, there are going to be many more pitches than there are at bats, so it will stabilize quicker, right? The, the you get a, a, a sample size much much quicker. Um, I know for for like CSW, it's about two and a half starts. What is what is the uh, uh, how fast does it converge in season? About two, three, four starts. Actually, if you if you look at just stuff plus, um, if we need if you're looking at stuff plus on a fastball, you need fifty pitches. Wow! Wow! Um, now it gets more complicated when you have a when you have a whole arsenal, right? So we, the the model does not perform as admirably on changeups. You need like 130 changeups. Sliders, you need like 60 to 70. So um, so you're already sort of adding that up and thinking about starts. Yes, if you want to look at a pitcher's stuff plus, you need two to three starts. If you want to look at a pitcher's pitching plus, which is slightly more predictively powerful and includes location you need more like 400 pitches uh to to start getting the predictive quality there but um that's still a a small sample and what we found in validating the model was that uh pitching plus was quicker than strikeouts minus walks which you're right that's the sort of plate appearance level but that's the most that's the strongest in-season like small sample marker we had before yeah. So we've already sort of improved on 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 that sort of thing. Yeah. You know, and I I, I heard you on uh, on the show Rates and Barrels, a acclaimed show of course. Mm-hmm. Uh that you know, you used to be a strikeouts walks guy and uh you know, it signified that pitchers really don't have control over anything other than that and you know, looking at your pitching plus model, you might see a little bit of that. I always think about a guy like Julio Urias that if you look at his FIP, his XFIP and all that, they're always so much higher than what he actually does. Is is Urias the type of pitcher that maybe your model would show as better than just using the traditional ERA estimators? And is it for that reason? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, one of the most interesting things that came out of this, and I don't know how hard to push it because it's early going. We we tested it against other projection systems, and it and it beat them. But um, we had two out of you know two out of samples. When you test, you want to have like out of sample seasons. You know, want to predict one season using another season. You know, um, yeah, yeah. And we, we, this we have Hawkeye data in this, and Seam Shifted Wake in this. So we only have three seasons total. <laughs> so we didn't feel like we should beat our chest and say, this beats all the projection systems. <laughs> we have three seasons. We've tested it against two, you know? Um, so there's, there's some of this is like wait and see mode. Uh, but what was really interesting was when we created the projection system, Stuff Plus and Location Plus both improved our ability to predict BABIP and pr- improved our ability to predict barrels allowed by the pitcher. 
those are two things that we in the past were more agnostic about and kind of exact for example in fangraphs war you know home you know we 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 take out babbitt completely um and, and and say the pitcher has no control over that so i think we're i wouldn't say that i want to throw dips out the window but i would say that like you know dips is defense independent pitching the idea that pitchers have no control of the ball and play i don't want to throw that out the window but i do think that we are advancing our knowledge of it and that this is one of those advances in terms of hey we can actually project babbitt better if we start looking at the per pitch level on these things yeah, no, I agree about Babbitt, but uh, actually Al Melkier was the guy who pointed this out a couple of years ago to me. Like uh, at ATC, actually one of the things it does really well is it is much better at predicting Babbitt. Like if you look at Steamer, they all show like a big regression to the mean uh, mm-hmm. on Babbitt. They all over regress. ATC doesn't do it as much because it takes some manual input as well. Um, and so, you know, I think that Babbitt is important because there is the element of, yeah, pitchers have some control over that. So I, I do agree with that. There's also, you know, but in Urias's case, that's really interesting in particular is that the Dodgers lead the league in BABIP if you go back one year, two years, three years, four years, five years, 50 years. Uh, they've, they've led the league. So now, is there a park factor there? That's possible, but it is not a total pitcher's park. Uh, so I don't know that that's it, all of it. And then last year, the Dodgers had a 248 team BABIP. And Yes, Urias pitched a lot of those. Kershaw pitched a lot of those. Gonsolin pitched a lot of those. But there's also some sort of team analytics effect where they are putting defenders in certain places, and we're about to see a major change. So one thing that really annoys me about the last three years, and this year in particular on top of it, is I just want a normal year because our model is a baby, and every year we've had some massive thing that is totally screwing with the model. We had 2020, which screwed with everyone's model, by the way. Uh, Then we also had uh, the sticky stuff enforcement in the middle of 2021. And that actually, we saw changes in, in league-wide stuff rates after the sticky stuff enforcement. Um, and, you know, t- you know, last year was largely normal, but this year we're going to ban the shift. And uh, so I'm, I'm fascinated to see, uh, you know, what happens to our model. It is a sort of living model, and, um, you know, it does get better when you train it on more data. So I, I wish that we had a, a normal year, you know. Yeah. Do you want to talk more about the uh, shift? But uh, just quickly, could you highlight a couple of pitchers that y- your pitching plus model maybe uh, shows as outperforming the conventional projection models? Well, so at the very top, it's the names that you know. But the thing is, that, uh, I did a sort of difference between uh, projected ERAs uh, in a naive model and then our model to, to kind of gather you some names. And at the very top, with the biggest difference is it's a lot of the best players, but we have a larger spread in BABIP than any of the uh, than any of the projection systems on Fangraphs. So, for example, uh, everybody likes Tyler Glass now, uh, but we like him better. You know, the the projected ERA in a naive model is like a 3.06 ERA. We have him for a 2.19. Um, and DeGrom, we have a 176 because we just have a larger spread in our BABIP. But, um, you know, for names that are a little bit more actionable that you might qualify as quote-unquote sleepers, we have Hunter Green, uh, about six-tenths of a point uh, lower than, than the naive model with a 371 ERA. Um, and a guy like Ryan Nelson, who doesn't obviously have high stuff, he rates really well in our stuff model. Part of it is 
a high ride fastball that creates pop-ups that doesn't always create create strikeouts sometimes it's pop-ups pop-ups have a very low BABIP so Ryan Nelson who has this great riding fastball uh, he has a four basically a four clean ERA in our system and a four six three in a lot of the others um, so, you know, uh, th- those are some names that, uh, that the model likes better, but definitely it's, uh, this is, it's just a bigger spread on the high stuff guys like Corbin Burns and Christian Javier and Dylan Cease. I mean, it still loves stuff cause stuff is stickiest year to year. So I'm going to throw this to Ruvain first, uh, cause, uh, so far we've talked a lot about Eno's model. Sorry, Ruvain. <laughs> no, that's okay. I'm, listen, this is very interesting and it's very applicable to what's going on. So I, um, this is, it's great. Yeah, so throwing it to you first, uh, you know, we, we've been talking a lot about how the new changes have been affecting hitters. Oh, you know, the shift, they're going to have those lefties. You're going to have more stolen bases with the new uh, the pickoff rules, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, how do you think the pitchers are going to be affected with the new rules? And do you think that there's going to be – is it going to be major effects? Is it minor effects? Like what's the level? Do, are you adjusting any of your numbers to account for, for that uh, like, what, what, what is your uh, uh, analysis on uh, how the new rules affect pitching? Well, I think most projection systems already compensated for all the changes that have happened, uh, that are going to happen. But I think what what I think is going to be the biggest impact, I think, is the pitch clock. I mean, everyone's saying, yes, it's going to be the, uh, the, the banning of the shift, but there are ways to get around it. You can either move outfielders around it. There are ways to get around it. Um, the bigger bases and the throw over, yes, there'll be more stolen bases. But the pitch clock. Pitchers are creatures of habit, and the fact that we're now going to be forcing them, a lot of, listen, if they pitched in the minors recently, they shouldn't have a problem because the clock's been in the minors already. But if they, if uh, veterans who haven't dealt with this, they have to have a better, uh, they have to have a plan right away. They have to have, it'll be like a football a football team. They, they plan out the first couple of plays. They plan out the first couple of pitches because they may get in trouble very early. And this is something that it's going to be harder for some of the, pitchers to work on because if they're going to the World Baseball Classic, they're going by the old rules. They're not even going by the new rules. So some of these pitchers are not going to get used to these new rules like the pitch clock and stuff like that until later on. I think the pitch clock is going to affect them because it makes the pitchers think quicker. So it makes the batters think quicker. But sometimes hitting a ball is just having the uh, the contact a little bit quicker and having a quicker eye. So I think that if the pitcher's thinking less, the batter has to think less, and it g- gives the batter a better advantage at the time of the ba- that bat. So, you know, I want to get your take on this, but just to also add, you know, if you know that the shift is going to be in place, if you're a pitcher, are you going to start to change your repertoire to try and strike out more people, right? Because obviously strikeouts are not going to be affected by the shift. Is that at all a consideration? And what are your thoughts in general? I mean, definitely if I was a team analyst, you know, I would think that these changes put more emphasis on having a left-hander in my bullpen or having a left-hander generally because uh, the shift rules will benefit lefties more, and I want to have weapons against lefties. Uh, We've seen some pitching staffs go away from even having a single lefty in the bullpen. I think that'll change. And on the team level, I would want strikeouts. If I was a team like running the Cardinals, they've uh, consistently been the bottom of the league in strikeouts, but... Uh, you know, it's worked because the shift, because they have great defenders and because they have a nice home park. Is that going to continue to work? I find that fascinating. So as a, as a sort of front office, yes. Uh, as a player, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure. They will. I, I, do, I do have one piece of information for you, which is that 
the number of when they first started doing these rules in the minor leagues, the number of of, of infractions, the number of box um, and and just mess ups basically um, was on the order of two or three a game. And I think if we had that, and we might have that in spring, we would freak out, and it would be it'd be terrible for all the pitchers. However, four or five weeks later, uh, that was down to a half of one uh, game, so one every two games. And that's on the same level of delay of game infractions in in, in the NFL. So uh, you know, I think uh, think they'll get used to it in the spring. Is basically my take. Uh, even somebody like um, Kenley Jansen, who I might want to stay away from a little bit because uh, maybe if if he loses a little bit of velo and he's an older pitcher and he's been used to being really slow. He seems like somebody that could be most affected by this. Um, at the same time, Kenley Jansen found out today that he's the slowest in baseball by looking at the TV and said to himself, I got to clean that up. And he has six weeks to clean it up. So I, I do think this this particular one may be a little overblown for what the effect it will have on the season. Well, he, he just found out today that he has six weeks. I guess he's slow in that department as well. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Otani, uh, as, a, as a counterexample, knew he was slow. He's the slowest starting pitcher um, and has been working on, like in his first bullpen session, um, had them counting out the clock and, and, uh, and was working on the clock, uh, you know, with his, with his catcher already. Aren't they also banning some gyrations from the pitchers? I heard about. I heard something about that also, like like what Nestor Cortez does, like that extra movement. Are they going to be banning that also? So that one, I think, is going to be difficult. But knowing exactly who it is, I mean, like Richard Blyer got you know three block box in a row late last season yeah, uh, against the Mets. Like, we like that one. Yeah, yeah, that worked yeah, out. That, that, didn't that turn into like a walk off win? Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So uh, uh, I think for some people that is hard because that's a mechanical thing. I think just sort of figuring out the timing will be all right. But yeah, for the people that uh, I guess Kevin Gossman um, has this uh, in has a has a weird one. Cortez has a weird one. Um, you know, there Johnny are Cueto. yeah Johnny Cueto. Uh, you know, so uh, you know the 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 league often says these things like they're going to crack down on something and just look at the history of sticky stuff enforcement there is enforcement nobody gets in trouble the league changes a little bit and then they find a way to basically be the same again yeah um want to talk about in terms of the shift and i thought of something the other day you know if if you're if you're a manager and you've got a tough lefty and there's no shift well what you can do is you can put your third baseman and play him at second, and you could put your second baseman and play him at third if you think your third baseman is a better fielder, or swap shortstop and second. Right? You, you can't can do, that. do that. You're not allowed to do that. No. So you can't change positions between at bats. If you change positions, somebody has to come out of the game. You can't change on the field. You can't put your left fielder in center and center in left. Yes, you can. You can't change a left side infielder for a right side infielder. So you can't just like have your shortstop and second baseman change. Hmm. Interesting. I, I did not realize that was an official rule. And is that inning per inning or is that for the entire game? I, w I wish I had it right in front of me, but I know that this particular thing, I was just with you and I was like, oh, they'll be doing all these sort of things. And there is some 
some verbiage in there um, about uh, about, uh, and I'll try to look for it in a second about exactly how to how to how that happens. But you can't do that. And I think the other one that people have talked about is taking your left fielder and putting him where the second baseman has been in the past or the yeah, third in baseman. Short right, in short um, right. I have talked to some team analysts about this, and there is, uh, you know, I think Buck Showalter talked about this. That um, that one doesn't work so well because anything to the opposite field is now an extra base hit, and so the only time that I think that'll be put into place is at the end of the game with two outs, where any hit ends the game. So right, then right. you don't care it's an extra base hit. So then you take that left fielder and you put him over. It's almost like the four man, uh, the four man on the right side of the infield that we used to, that we've seen sometimes. Like there'll only be a right fielder, a left fielder in right in short right uh, in extreme circumstances, I believe. But a move like the but a move like the wheel that's still allowed. You can still have the 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 fielders in motion at at the time of the pitch. Correct. They also said that they don't like that. And they may legislate that, but it is not in the rules, uh, particularly. Right. Now, I was going to say, if you can, if you can shift your short and second just to swap them, you're going to have a lot of fantasy players gaining eligibility really quickly, right? Yeah. Technically, I thought. Be, yeah. I thought that might be the case. Uh, uh, so it says here, new baseball rules uh, for 2023 FAQ, MLB.com. No, if the shortstop is the team's best defender, he cannot switch spots with a second baseman against a batter more likely to hit that ball to the side of second base. That's in the FAQ. I don't know exactly how they – what the that's from MLB.com, FAQ. Uh, and it also says in that same FAQ, no running starts won't be allowed. But, um, you know, there's uh, a question of how they've actually legislated that and what the actual wording is and what teams are going to be willing to push it. What I think is that some of the more interesting ways of pushing it will happen in year two or three or four because year one will just be about just trying to play without breaking the rules. Right, right. Yeah, also interested to see how, you know, you defend against the stolen base. Sometimes it's a shortstop, sometimes a second. Are they going to be creeping over the line? I guess we'll see what happens. Um want to talk about risk here. Uh, and before we do that, it's time for the Injury Gurus Trivia of the Week. Now, since we're talking about risk and we're talking about starting pitchers, the two major risks when it comes to starting pitchers could be are usually health and age. Those are the two things we think about when it comes to starting pitchers. So that made me get to thinking about the Hall of Fame because we're a couple of people were recently elected to the Hall of Fame and the Hall of Fame voting just happened. So can you name which Hall of Famer starting pitcher has the least amount of innings pitched? Which starting pitcher Hall of Fame has the least amount of starting of uh, least amount of innings pitched? I mean, I've Gotta guess because he's always the guy that people reference when they talk about short careers and, and great peaks. I bet I'm wrong, but Sandy Koufax? It's not Sandy Koufax. Yeah. I, I thought that too when I first looked it up. That's what people talk about is he didn't have a great long career, but he was great when he was in. I have absolutely no idea of this one. Satchel Page, because he played Whoa, in the Negro Leagues. Of the Negro Satchel Leagues. Page only right. pitched 1,729 innings and he's in the Hall of Fame. And the reason why I bring it up is because a lot of the pitchers that we're going to be talking about now have either health risk or age risk, but a lot of them have actually Hall of Fame trajectories. Okay? So the question is, 
how do you value pitchers when they have a health risk or when they're returning from an absence? Like, like, for, like say, a Chris Sale, how would you value him compared to other pitchers? Yeah, uh, that's a really difficult one. I think the whole uh, the whole interaction of quality and quantity. I I struggled with placing Jacob Degrom. I mean, yeah, uh, you know, just one way of looking at it is, is you know, on Fangraphs, if he pitches 150 innings, he's the best pitcher in baseball, even by WAR. Um, and so, you know, I had him fourth, but then I just realized when I was in drafts, there was no way I was taking him fourth. It was, it was just like for my first pitcher, I want no risk I, or at least as little risk as I can get. I want a guy who's got great. I want no question marks. I want a guy who's got great stuff, great location, great projections and a great you know injury risk. And so Jacob deGrom kept falling and falling. He's still in my top 10, but I don't find myself reaching for him a lot. Uh, you had a question about somebody in particular, though. Uh, sorry, I've forgotten already. Yeah, I, I actually mentioned, uh, you mentioned Jacob DeGrom, but I also mentioned Chris Sale, who's coming back yeah, from Chris a stress Sale. fracture in his rib, a fractured finger, a fractured wrist. He's 34. He's got 1,678 innings under his belt already. What can you expect from a pitcher like that? I mean, one nice thing is that our model, you know, captures pretty quickly how good you are on return. So uh, for Tyler Glass now, for example, it, it looked like all of his stuff came back with him. And for Chris Sale, it looked like not all of his stuff came back with him um, after the injury. So I always like it when they have a little bit of, of pitching last year so I can just see, did the stuff come back, you know? Um, but, you know, he still had above average stuff. Um, he has a decent projection, a 3.73 ERA. Uh, I've got him for 140 innings, and I have him in my top 40. Um I I think that he has actually some hidden in, uh, upside in there because he's obviously a better than a three seven three ERA guy if he returns to form, um, and then taking him just taking him in the top forty, the back end of the top forty, uh, I think is an appropriate sort of way to mitigate uh, that risk of his injury. And you know if I if he's good, uh, I've got another number one or number two. If he's bad, I I just lost a number four, a number three basically. So yeah. uh, I try to think about it that way. And I try to um, I don't think you can avoid risk entirely because then you're going to end up with, uh, you know, Kyle Gibson's a lot. You know, um, that's one of the guys that has uh, one of the lowest injury risks on my on my list. Um, and I, I think you do want some quality. So what I just try to do is be safe as possible with my first pick. And then in the next couple of picks, I'm going to take a shot on somebody that might be low in innings. And a lot of times this year is Tyler Glass now. I mean, aside from the top where, you know, you get the least amount of, uh, of uh, doubts for performance and you get some stable pitchers who have shown this, it actually drops off pretty quickly to the area where you either have, you're either a good pitcher with some kind of injury risk or you're a guy who we're not sure if he's going to take the next step, but there's always some kind of wart for a pitcher. And, you know, for a guy like Jacob DeGrom, what, what, what I – don't think is the right attitude that most people do and go into draft is they say, well, I have him ranked X, and I just hope that when it gets to me, uh, somebody else takes him because I don't want to decide. <laughs> I, you know, and I, I, I mean, we're, we all have said that at this time. Well, I hope somebody does it so I don't, I don't get the choice. But the truth is that you should be taking the positive affirmation of saying, okay, where am I comfortable taking Jacob DeGrom? Uh, where that's why am it keeps I dropping for me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if if you don't want to take him in the fourth round, 
um, pick the round that you would take them. That's going to be the equivalent of some innings, and that's what you're projecting there, right? Get, take a stance on a guy. Don't let for the draft come to you because there's always going to be some kind of question about a player with some kind of injury risk, and you just have to take a stance whether you're okay with the risk at some point. Yeah, I'm actually manually moving him down right now as we speak. Cause, I mean, <laughs> you're right. Why do I have him higher if I don't pick him there when I have the chance? You know, that's another yeah. way of saying it is if you've means tested it and you've looked at that guy straight in the eye and you didn't take him, then that's not your ranking. So. Yeah, if, if you have a set of projections and it shows that a guy is a $15 player, but you're not comfortable taking him at a $15 player, why are you projecting him at $15? You move your rankings, yeah. move your numbers, right? So what I what I do now have now is is the ground uh, a little bit lower, and what I hope uh, is that um, I have another pitcher. So I think a, an awesome pairing at the top uh, could be something like Luis Castillo and Jacob Degrom. You know, because Luis Castillo very low injury percentage according to Jeff Zimmerman's numbers. Um, you know, in a nice park. Uh, you know, has demonstrated uh, ability over time. And Jacob Degrom is the guy that could put up an ERA two runs lower than his. You know? So, right, right. so uh, you pair those two, and you and you get the innings from one, and you get the upside from the other, maybe. Right, or you make sure that you've got innings, just you know, innings, innings later on. Um, and you know, this way, if if Jacob Degrom only throws fifty innings, at least you know that plus the the total innings, even if it's at a three seven ERA, that gets you you know some overall numbers but, uh, in total. I will say that uh, the thing that you said was very smart about uh, how they're just everything has warts later on. And um, what I find is there are more opportunities to take injury risks later in the draft. Uh, that there's right. basically always somebody you could take. And like, the cost is lower. The cost And the cost lower is lower, right. So Luis Severino, by my numbers, has a 3-4 projection with a 3-4 ERA projection with a 28 strike, 28% strikeout rate. That's great. You know, that's that should be maybe a little bit higher than I have him. I have him a little higher than most people. He drops in drafts because nobody likes his innings. Well, I can't take him if I took Tyler Glass now, you know. And right, if I do right. go Glass now, uh, Severino, then I then I have to be really vanilla for a while, um, and that's not great either. Well, then then you can ask the question, how many innings do you think Severino's going to have? How many innings do you think Jacob deGrom's going to have? How many innings do you think Tyler Glasso's going to have? The innings you get the quality better is quality is more with deGrom obviously, but if if you need innings for a one or two pitcher, you need to get him somewhere. Yeah. yeah. And and the uh the nice thing about the ATC projections is that um, we've quantified some of that risk so that if you see Jacob DeGrom has a ridiculous projections risk and the interest for Jacob DeGrom is like six or seven. It's, it's mm. humongous. Uh, if you're going to take that, you want to take a very low projections risk later on or vice versa. And the ATC interest gives you a way to quantify it, right? You can literally right. add the numbers up. Uh, when when I do my tallies, I'm adding up the risk, and you know the more risk you take on, the more profit you take on, right? You can, if you have a lower amount of risk, you can actually go a little bit further on your team aggregate as compared to the market. So you know it, it's good numbers to to have in there to quantify risk as you're doing your draft. Now I want to stay a little bit more with the risk here and talk about older pitchers and age. And there's always the age-old question of there's Verlander, Scherzer. These are guys who have done it for so long. We know who they are, but they've got a lot of mileage on their arm. They're also older. Uh, does that benefit them? Do we should we be taking them more? Should we be worried about them getting you know hurt and not 
and only going 130 innings as opposed to 180. How do you take uh, age into account when you're assessing risk? Yeah, uh, I. <sighs> so one thing I can think of is uh, when Rob Arthur did uh, injury projections uh, for position players, um, age was a factor, but it was not the strongest factor. So that's one thing I know. Um, I know that uh, the ratio of older pitchers to younger pitchers is never been more skewed, uh, or at least in recent times, hasn't been more skewed towards older pitchers um, than it is now. We have a lot of older starting pitchers. So there's something about that where we're keeping people healthier longer in, in some ways. Um, so that's those are kind of arguments in one direction. However, there was also a piece at Baseball Prospectus by... Uh, Russell Carlton, where he found that every pitch you throw over the course of the season makes you worse. <laughs> Interesting. And uh, I I think that that probably is the case over a full season. You do have your Nolan Ryans, but I think those are just outliers. Uh, so I do think that age is a factor. If I do take an older ace um, early, um, I will consider it a little bit of a risk so that's why i have strider maybe higher than some uh i have woodruff higher than some i have verlander and scherzer um you know the back end of the top 10 um where if i do take them i may want to double tap with my luis castillo mention or maybe aaron nola um, somebody who's more mid-career and has a nice green injury percentile uh, from Jeff Zimmerman. So I, I, I tend to uh, do some conditional formatting in my sheets so that I have some green and red that, that kind of captures my eyes. And all the old guys have a big old red injury percentile. Ruvain, I want to talk about Shohei Otani. And uh, I see him as uh, more of a risk than people think. Uh, for one reason, because he's doubly exposed to injury, right? Uh, not that he is a very injury-prone player, but there's a lot of injuries in Major League Baseball, right? Injuries are up. Uh, some very high percentage get injured no matter what. And he is doubly exposed. He's playing as a hitter. Uh, granted, it's a DH, but he's also playing as a pitcher. If he gets hit hurt as a pitcher, that affects his hitting stats because he's not going to be playing or he's going to be affected, right? Uh, so they're correlated, and because those two stats are correlated, the injury risk goes higher. You can also say the same thing that if you're taking Otani, let's say, in a weekly league, that, well, listen, maybe if his performance isn't so good as a pitcher, all right, so I won't play him as a pitcher, I'll play him as a hitter or vice versa. So you get almost two chances to get a what could be a first or second round type caliber player in either pitching or hitting. So that could be less risky. Uh, where do you view the risk on, on Shohei Otani for you? Well, it's already been four years since he had Tommy John surgery. This was back, he had Tommy John surgery in the back in 2018. Um, and I think the Angels basically did the um, helped us with the risk by having a six-man rotation, and they do that on purpose. They want to spread it out. They don't want to have that extra risk on him. So if you want him as a pitcher, that's fine. He, but he'll, he'll only pitch once a week. You're not going to get many two starts out of him. He'll it'll be quality, but they're also going to monitor him because he's just so much more valuable as a hitter. I, I don't think that there's a double risk just because. Listen, you can have an outfielder who's who's who hits uh, 40 home runs, but he can get injured in the field also. So I don't see how it's a double risk. Yes, I understand he's a pitcher, but he's gone through the Tommy John scenario already. I don't think there's going to be, I don't think there's as much risk as you're making it out to be. No, it, it's not a double risk. Uh, he's doubly exposed. So it's an increase in risk. 
Well, so so he he what he's he's playing six days a week, seven days uh, on average six days a week. So do most players. I I, I don't I don't think he the fact that he's doubly exposed will affect it just because that you know he he already went through the tough quote unquote Tommy John aspect of it. So I'm not as concerned with the pitching aspect and the hitting aspect. He, listen, he's only he's 28. This is his prime. This this is the time when he should be quote unquote as immune as you're going to be to being uh, exposed to injury just because of his age and just because he knows what he has to do. He has a set schedule. The Angels make sure that they treat him with kit gloves and the fact that they don't try to push him too much with the pitching. And and I, I think that's it's a matter of, I mean, the NBA uses load management. They have to understand that there's a load management for Otani, even if he does play six days a week. You know, what's your take on Otani and risk? I, I was just thinking of Zach Gallen, who hurt himself uh, swinging the bat. Um, I do hear what you're saying, and I do think there is something to that. Um, I, I would. Uh, he already has, uh, by Jeff Zimmerman's, a 70, 70th percentile just as a pitching pitcher in terms of risk. Um, and then you can you can hurt an oblique. One thing that's interesting is he did play. He did hit while he was hurt for pitching. Um, so there, there is that chance where you lose him as a pitcher, but he's still hitting. But I think that that's a relatively uh, narrow use case. <laughs> you know, I mean, if he if he hurts an oblique, as an example, and obliques are really important for baseball, you turn a lot. There's rotational energy. If he hurts an oblique, he can't pitch or hit. Um, and that's a very common injury, and that's that could happen to him any either way. So I tend to agree that he has higher risk maybe than uh, people are appreciating. So let's talk uh, starting pitcher strategy this year um, because uh, the landscape of fantasy play is forever changing. I remember the days 10 years ago where if you had a pitcher and you spent $20 in an auction, they would say, are you crazy, man? And now if you don't do that or sometimes if you don't spend two or even three pitchers that price, then they think you're crazy. It's just changed so much. I remember I wrote an article a couple years ago, the case for an ace. Uh, Now everybody's doing it and – the question is, should we be doing that still? Do we need that elite pitcher in the first couple of rounds, um, or should we be focusing on the hitters? You know, looking at last year, the top hitters, by and large, held their value. When I'm drafting, I'm trying to get as low risk, as more bankable stats than anyone in the first couple of rounds. That's why on this show in particular, I'm advocating to give a longer look to Freddie Freeman. Freddie Freeman has returned $25 of fantasy value five years in a row. Why is he going at pick 15? He should be going much further up because of his low risk. So pitchers, a little bit more risky. Hitters, not. Should we be, should we be buying a, a, an ace? And is the, is the pocket ace of strategy, is that something that is just totally ridiculous for you? What do you think, Eno? <laughs> no, you've, you've, you've written a, a pretty good um, defense of pocket aces. Um, and I appreciate it. Uh, it's just not for me because and it kind of goes to a little bit what you said about how early the pitchers start having warts. And so I think it's pretty uh, difficult to get two pitchers without any warts. Um, even the things I was saying, get Justin Verlander and Luis Castillo. Well, you did get a wart there. It's Justin Verlander's 98th percentile injury risk. <laughs> you, know? Um, it, it, you know, so I... I kind of think I treat aces as the same way that I treat relievers, which is I want one from the back end of the top tier. 
I want to make sure I get one. I don't want my top reliever to be Kenley Jansen. And I don't want my top starter uh, to be Dylan Cease. So I think I want to sort of get a top 10 guy uh, at starting pitching, and I want to get a top five uh, reliever. And if I want to do both those things, I need to take two starting pitchers in the first five rounds. And that doesn't, re- I mean, two pitchers in the first five rounds, and that doesn't leave a lot of time for double aces because then I'm falling really behind on bats. Now, I want to also go right back to you and talk about the other end of the spectrum at the bottom. And I think we were talking over at First Pitch in Arizona that um, the waiver wire, especially for 15 teams and, and worse, just stinks. Like uh, <laughs> the days of streaming starters where you say, well, you know, take who, oh, whoever it is so and bad. pop them in there. It's, it's garbage. Uh, you can blow up your ERA in four seconds. If, if you're playing and you're putting in somebody off the, oh, let's get a starter who looks like a good matchup in April or May, that is complete death. Uh, does that mean that we need to really think carefully about how we draft our later pitchers uh, and really pile up before we get to the bottom, especially also uh, because there are more hitters in the pool because of the NLDH and therefore, the waiver wire pool for hitters gets richer and more fungible, but it also means that the pitcher's waiver wire gets less fungible. So does that mean that the tilt is have more uh, active player-ready pitchers on your roster than you would normally? Yeah, I believe we talked about this after an interesting presentation by Rob Silver um, where he talked about uh, the NLDH creating more jobs and how there were more sort of 3 to $5 bats in the pool than we used to have. And I found that really fascinating because there will be times on a draft where I'll be like, oh, my auction value, say this guy's uh, you know worth $4 and I need to have a credible utility or fifth outfielder. Um, and so I should take this $4 outfielder before it gets to $1 outfielders. But what if there are a bunch of $4 fifth outfielders and utility guys and the supply of pitching is going down while I'm focusing on getting my last outfielder and my utility guy? So I do think when it gets to around the sort of 3 to $5 level on bats, I may go in the other direction and try to get um, you know credible pitchers on my bench so that I'll actually be pitching uh, I should be picking a bench pitcher before I've filled out my entire hitting lineup um, and I think I think I may try that out this year yeah it was definitely definitely uh, the argument to do that and uh, it's worth exploring if, if nothing else uh, I saw an article by the Birchwood brothers on fangraph saying that the uh, the teams that did better in the main event this year are the teams that went like 55, 45% in terms of value of pitching, like much more than ever before. The average NFBC Wait, comes to about— towards six, pitching, 55, 50, No, I, I'm 40, sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. Towards hitting. So oh, yeah, 55, but, still, but still that's a narrow where it used to be people used to do 70-30. Yes, it used to be 70-30. Apologies. It's now, uh, it used to be 70-30. In the NFBC, it's closer to about 60 40 right now and the teams that did well were 55 45 correct correct so the argument is there Ruben I want to go for you to to this is um should we be chasing some of the pitching statistics so should we be chasing wins as a category should we be chasing innings because innings are at a premium these days should we be chasing pitchers that have very high innings per start because that would lend 
towards that? And should we be chasing pitchers on winning teams? Like what, what are your priorities for what you think you should be emphasizing while you're drafting? I think you have to look at where you're, what team they're on, because if you're going to draft a, a pitcher from the from the from the Rays as opposed to a different team, their average innings per start is going to be different than other teams. So you have to watch for that. But I think I'd rather chase innings as opposed to wins, because the more innings you have in your team, it means the pitchers are going into deeper into games, and you have to worry about the, that part. And wins are just so fickle that mm-hmm. anyone could get a win because pitchers are being taken out six six inning seventh inning and 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 there's so much lead change because the bullpens are not as deep as they used to be and, and now they're talking about even doing expansion expansion will water down even more if that happens so i th- i think you have to really chase the innings but not just take a guy and say okay listen there's a guy in the pirates i know he's gonna throw 160 innings i want him no that, that's that's not how it's supposed to be you have to get a guy who's who's going to not kill you in your ratios, but give you 150, 160 innings. And if they're on a good team, I put them above teams that are that are that may not be a good team. I think that that's how you're supposed to really rank it. Yeah, I mean, I'm going for pitchers in a points league who have very high innings per start. Like I, the last, past couple of years, I've been taking Marco Gonzalez in points leagues. Hey, Marco Gonzalez, why? Well, he just has the highest propensity to get to get a yeah. decision. Yeah, he uh, does. You know. He is the highest in baseball. Yeah, and and that was a little fact that, that you know I'm not that I'm pushing it, but I'm evaluating him more. But what about you? What are your priorities for what you should be chasing? You know, in your drafts. Yeah, I tend to find uh, I tend to not think about wins at all, and um, you know I'm I'm so focused on finding deep sleepers. I just had a deep sleeper article for for the Athletic, and I'm so fo- interested in finding deep sleepers. And those deep sleepers are often on bad teams. Um, you know, because there are no deep sleepers on the Yankees, you know? <laughs> um, and so I, I find myself at the end of the season, sometimes behind in wins. Um, I have found this, so I don't know that I'm going to chase it, um, team by team. I, I wonder, you know, for example, on the, on the Orioles or the, or the Rays, is there a progression in mind? You've seen some pitchers like Tyler Wells started the season at 80 pitches, uh, was allowed to go to 100 pitches at one point uh, during the season for a little bit, and then uh, and then was uh, shut down for the season. You saw Drew Rasmussen on the Rays. He started at 80 pitches, and he generally started pushing it to 80, 90, 100. And he was so actually he was so um, he was so uh, efficient that he did get some wins and he did get into the sixth inning sometimes, even on 80 pitches. So um, I don't want to just not draft those guys because they could give me 150 innings of great ratios and that still has its own value. Um, But I do want to think about wins. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure I've figured out exactly how to do it. I think innings is a good idea. Yeah. You know, going back to the point about not getting guys off the waiver wire, you know, one thing psychologically I always remember is, oh, take a two-start pitcher. You got two chances to win. Well, now mm-hmm. you don't, right? If he's going four and two-thirds on a crappy team and in the first so game. Ma- yeah, so many of those guys were three and dive and four and dive. Yeah, it was it was really bad streaming last year. Yeah, there, there's no – you don't have two chances to win. You got zero chances to win, <laughs> right? So what's the value in, in taking these two-start pitchers? What I, there's not – what I'm hoping is that if you if you, if I buy more credible starting pitchers that I don't want to drop that are not streamers, if I buy more of them and I actually have two on my bench or two or three on my bench, that whole idea of getting two start pitchers will not be I need to get a two start pitcher off the waiver wire. It's going to be 
which one of the two start pitchers on my roster am I going to put in? Right. Yep. So I'm bringing up that level. It's something that Paul Sporer calls team streaming, where you've got someone who you don't want to play every single time. Um, and, uh, you know, there's like a Nick Martinez on the Padres. I, I have a feeling that he's the type of guy that will you could actually keep on your roster and avoid the Dodgers. But if he's got a double tap of the Giants and D-backs, you throw him in there, you know. Um, and so there's some line there. I haven't exactly figured it out, but I, I want to have like two or three credible starting pitchers on my bench. Yeah. We have a mail, a mailbag question from Trevor and you know, his question is for reserve round picks in a league with seven bench spots. Do you prefer, uh, what is the balance between hitting and pitching, uh, on, on your roster and whatever the answer is this year, I think it's one extra pitcher. Right. (laughs) I mean, Um, I want to push that as much as possible. I think one of the ways to trick that is to get a multi uh, uh, multi eligibility guy as one of your bats. And uh, almost like in a draft and hold where multi eligibility, you can start to say, well, I have four shortstops by eligibility, but only three bodies. You know, you can if you put a guy on your bench like an Isak Paredes or something. Now you've got first, second and third covered as a defender, as a as a reserve. Um, maybe you can then use that extra slot for a pitcher. So if you could get two multi-eligible guys, I'd go five pitchers. And then if you and and then if your draft didn't go the way you wanted, instead of doing that, you can also get just a middle reliever and just throw them in there. Also, that the middle relievers will hopefully usually well usually have better ratios than these two star pitchers. Yeah. 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 At this point, if you if you don't have any other options, yes, go go for the middle reliever, which is going to be pretty free actually on the waiver wire. Um, I do want to do a couple of mailbag questions, but just to talk about a few players, we did the ATC undervalued players. We did a lot of them with Nick Pollock last week, uh, but I do want to talk about a couple guys at the top that ATC shows a small bargain, uh, and I'll say all three of them, and maybe you can talk about the one that you like the most. Uh, Aaron Nola at the top, just for that stability and for the almost automatic 200 strikeouts, per, you know, I'll say right now. Shane Bieber, and then there's also Kevin Goffman, who, uh, um, well, you know, the, the BABIP was pretty bad last year in Toronto. I don't know that it's going to be great this year because he's still in Toronto, uh, but hopefully it'll be luckier uh, luckier than last year, which was uh, not. Uh, any three of these three pitchers really stand out to you as somebody you'd be uh, having on more of your rosters, you know? Yeah, Gossman and Nola are two that I really like, and um, I feel like they are low injury risk. Uh, they are, at least by Jeff Zimmerman's percentiles. Uh, they're high stuff, high command, uh, not in the best ballparks. I do know Toronto's changing those, uh, those, the, the, the walls there a little bit, um, but uh, they've, they've shown the ability to succeed in these uh, little bit hitter-friendly ballparks. Like I, I think they're really steady really kind of vanilla-y, uh, but uh, really good pitcher. So I'm with you on that. I just, uh, Shane Bieber for me is one that the model has never really liked. It's said that he's had average or below average stuff basically uh, throughout. It's got him with a 3-4-9 uh, uh, projected ERA, um, which keeps me, has me putting him in the back end of the top 25. And I think that puts me out of the, the running for getting him. Um, I, I'm trying to be reasonable and I was wrong about him last year. Uh, so maybe I'll just be wrong about him again. So <laughs> I, yeah. I, I, I don't think you should ask me about Shane Bieber is what I'm asking. What I'm saying. The, uh, ATC interest D for Shane Bieber, 5.3, much higher to compare. Aaron Nola is at 2.7. 
Kevin Gausman at 2.7. So a lot more uh, risk, uh, parameter risk, uh, at the very least, for Shane Bieber. Ruvain, any favorites uh, of the three for you? Yeah, I'm going to go also with Nola and Gausman. Nola... He, he he's been a workhorse. He's he's getting these two hundred innings. He's he's the guy. If you want those innings, he's an innings eater. And the yeah. Phillies, um, I hate to say it, but do the Phillies have a better bullpen this year than last year? Maybe they'll hold a couple more leads for him if he can't go the eight innings and, and then hand it off to the closer. So I I, I like Nola in that in that respect. And Gaussman, Gaussman's going to be playing less at Fenway Park, less at the Yankees less at the Rays, which is only going to help. He almost completely stopped using his changeup last year, which may have helped a little bit. I don't know if he's going to try to tinker with that anymore. And his velocity is stable. Even though he's 32, I, I think he's very stable. I, I Listen, I remember the days when he was on Baltimore. No one wanted to touch him because he couldn't. He, he, he pitched like uh, the guy from, from, from the Wild Thing, from the, from the movie Major League. He, he can be, Kevin Gaussman can be an ace. And you can have him as your ace and get them cheaper and be able to plan the rest and budget the rest of your guys so that you don't end up with those bottom feeder pitchers at the end because you got a cheaper ace. I'm going to agree with both of you and, and say that those two are the best that stand out. Uh, do, does this does this podcast affect the market? Like if we say that that those two are better, will, will their prices go up? What do you I think? hope not. I hope not. <laughs> I just was in a draft and hold where I had told everybody on Twitter I was doing it and they all jumped in and they all had my rankings open and I got sniped left and right. It was so awful. <laughs> You know, try to go into a draft where everybody uh, on their computer screen has ATC projections. See what happens. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so there you go. All right. A couple of mailbag questions here. I'll do two of them. Uh, Alex asks, can you talk about your process for picking up pitchers off the waiver wire post-draft? And I don't mean stream matchups. We're just talking about curious about the stats that you look as indicators of someone who are about to take a leap. Might be applicable to a draft as well, but talk about it as a, in terms of the waiver wire. I mean, for me, it's tough. I mean, I, I, I look at stuff, but I think an easier way, if, if you uh, don't have access to stuff, is uh, Velo. Um, I'm very particularly interested in Velo boosts uh, early in the season. Um, Velo has been shown by Rob Arthur to be predictive, actually. It's the kind of the hot hand of pitching is uh, guys that have Velo boosts. So, if somebody comes into the season, it's, and it's harder in spring, right? Because in spring, um, maybe they pitch two innings and they are two two miles per hour up, but then when they go to five six innings, they're they're normal. Uh, but if we if you have one start or two starts in your bag when you're looking at a and the free agents we wire and somebody's up a tick or two, that that's something that catches my eye. Ruvain, what about you? Anything to add? Innings. Look at the innings because if you look at projection models, a lot of the projection models will show that this picture is worth this value, this picture is worth this value. But if you look at the value and look at the innings that they're projected to be pitched, I, I think that plays a big deal because if their value may be a little bit lower, but you get more innings out of the guy and you and you're able to, you know, bulk up your 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 ratio stats a lot better, I think this, I think your team will be better off just be because you're not going to be looking for those innings guys. And even if you do try to get those two-star pitchers, they're not going to kill your ratios just because you banked all those other innings. Well, I mean, for, for relievers, it, it, uh, you know, aligned with that, it, it's more usage and leverage. But uh, in terms of the stats, if you don't have access to Pitching Plus or, you know, aside from velocity, uh, K-BB is always a very yeah, easy indicator. That's a strong one. Yeah, swinging strike rate or even a CSW is probably a good one yeah. also. Swinging strike rate stabilizes quicker than called strike rate. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that that's a very good quick one, and it's sometimes often about being quick to the market. So exactly. yeah, take the quick. Oh, another one. one. I just had one more pitching mix changes. Yeah. So if you yes. see a large, like a, basically, if you see a new pitch, then I would say I think um, a large change is maybe five, but definitely ten percent. Like if you see somebody throwing something ten percentage points more often, that is a big deal. They they've discovered a new pitch. Yes. Yeah, and get on this quickly in in April or May because these pitchers, Spencer Strider is not going to be a, available later in the league, that kind of thing, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Faye the Man asks, what is your recommended build for pitching from an FP versus RP standpoint? Meaning, do you target three relief pitchers or two studs? We're talking here about a standard 12-team Roto. Um, I I want one stud uh one guy that i'm pretty sure has the job and then i take two more that i think could get the job yeah I i'm about uh, very close to that ruben yeah I, I agree starting pitchers you get a one a one a and you get one guy who's got the job even if he's and one guy another guy you can get another guy who gets the job but on a bad team because a lot of times those tigers closers even if he has a job he will have a job at least for april maybe even to may and you can bank those saves we're talking snake draft here because in an auction, uh, it's a little bit different because you can you don't have to have a first rounder and a second rounder and a third rounder. You can yeah, actually, some of the things. Yeah, in 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 those, I try to get one stud and then I I have another sort of six or seven dollars um, where I'm trying to get three relievers and uh, something that Ruben said earlier about uh, sometimes getting a middle reliever in mono leagues. Uh, one of those guys may just be a dollar mono leaguer at a middle reliever at the end of the season, at the end of the draft where um, I just think that guy will have good ratios and, and can pitch for me. And sometimes those guys end up closing. So uh, it's a little bit more in mono leagues and auction leagues. It's a little bit more like one stud and a bunch of darts. Yeah. Last question I have for you. Uh, some of my own as, as uh, not starting pitching, but talking relief pitching here and, you know, we're contemplating our strategies as to what we do with closers. And, you know, closer roles are fickle, but some of the cheaper or potentially cheaper ways to acquire saves might be getting maybe the handcuff. Uh, so if you have a situation like Seawald Munoz, those are two good pitchers. If you get both of them, you're almost guaranteed of getting a, a whole share, like the 100% share of everything. Is it worth doing something like that if you're in a 12-team or even 15-team mixed league, or is that just a silly strategy? Uh, it's a waste. Just do cheaper darts at the bottom and one stud at top. Like, which is that a viable option for you, or or the Tampa Bay situation? Fairbanks, Jason Adam, you'll get at least 70% of the saves. Well, uh, you never know with the Rays. The ball, the ball <laughs> boy is going to get a save. Too, no, but I, I I I prefer the Rays one actually because um, it's cheaper i think it'd be a little bit tough actually to do the seawall munoz because then you're you're taking shots like i think those guys like you might be able to get a bednar around those guys and david bednar you know is on a team that doesn't have any other options and he'll also probably, be traded yeah he could also be traded i mean, I mean like there's, if there's risk down there but seawall munoz are more expensive than fairbanks and adam and so fairbanks and adam i think would be a kind of a cheap way to kind of be like i think i got one guy here Sure. I mean, David Bednar, like, you know, all the projection models, like, what do you have them down for? 20, 25 saves like that? Yeah, Should, I mean. Don't you multiply by a, by a half or by 60% because he's going to be traded, right? Uh, like, why would you, I, why would you I, buy I, David Bednar? Pirates are going to stink. They've traded the, the other reliever last year. 
They'll trade him this year. Yeah. I don't tend to uh, try to forecast trades because it's pretty tough. True. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, you you can't forecast trades at, at the at the draft table. You you just can't do that because even if they get traded, they're getting traded in July. And even when they get traded, sometimes they get traded to a team that, that needs you know may not have a closer anymore, and they may yeah. still close. So you, you you can't go. You can't say, okay, you know what? I'm gonna draft this guy, but I know he's gonna be traded in the offseason. You, you just like you can't go sit at the table saying, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna draft this guy, even though I think he's gonna get hurt. You don't draft a person based on what you think's gonna happen. That's what the projections are for. You you can't um, just start changing like that. I don't think. The only thing I'll say to that though is because the market premium this year for closers are so high. It's I high. mean, David Bednar is going for an auction equivalent of thirteen dollars. Do I really want to spend $13 on a closer on a bad team that has a good chance of being traded? It's just the cost is so high that I got to ask the question if I want to roster that kind of team, you know? That's why that's why I prefer to get that stud in hand so I feel like I've got my one and then um, I'm just trying to grab guys at the bottom of tiers and if it's an auction thing it's going to be more darts so I'm going to be more you know, uh, three to five dollar guys that I think are closers, especially since uh, my model is actually most powerful with with relievers because they're small sample guys who rely on stuff. You know, um, yeah. And so uh, it, my model actually has been shown to to beat uh, most projection systems year over year just by itself, just with stuff and and location uh, for relievers. So. Uh, I tend to just be like, I think I can get some high stuff guys later. You know, another uh, kind of handcuff that's pretty cheap is probably Leclerc Hernandez in in Texas. How about that's the Dodger situation? I like Phillips? Evan Phillips a lot, so I've been yeah. I've been drafting Evan Phillips too. Yeah, I mean that's really cheap. They're going for like four dollar equivalents. I mean that's yeah. that's, that's that's a really, really good one. I think and that's, it's, and it's I think a good that's team. Better. That's probably less expensive than Seawald Munoz actually. And and they're Watch. a good team, so you know you're going to get a good share of saves because they're going to have a lot of save opportunities. Whoever it's going to be, if you get the handcuff, cost you a roster spot. But in the case that they don't have a committee, you drop one, right? Like it's. it's... I tend to like go into the season with four relievers and target that fourth reliever spot as someone I'm going to drop in the first FAB. You know, if it's an right. FAB league, because you always want to have someone you can drop. So either it's going to be a prospect uh, that doesn't make the team or a reliever that didn't make closer. And those are those are my two most fungible kind of end of game and end game picks. Right. All right. Well, this has been a fantastic episode. A lot of great strategy. Some players here. Uh, thank you you know, so much for coming on. And uh, before I let you go, why don't you tell everybody uh, where they can read your work, uh, hit, listen to you and uh, everything that's going on with you? Uh, yeah, we've uh, just released our draft kit over the, at, the, at the Athletics, so I've got deep sleepers out there. I've got uh, breakout bats, breakout arms, and my uh, pitching projection models with Jordan Rosenblum are out there with uh, a full Google Doc for everybody to look at. You know, pitching, you know, stuff by pitch type and stuff. So that's a lot of fun. And then uh, if you are on the fence, you can just listen to us at Rates and Barrels for free. You have to listen to some ads, but. Uh, you can check us out at Rates and Barrels for free and, and see if you want to take the plunge after that. So uh, thanks so much for, for having me on your podcast. And uh, I'm always rooting for you. And and uh, and I'd be expecting those uh, ATC values for labor uh, any day now. All <laughs> right. You, you got it, you know. Uh, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much for coming on. Uh, always great having you. Uh, again, you said at the top of the show you were the first guest. And uh, hopefully this won't be your last appearance either. Yeah, yeah, and I and and thanks to you for uh, helping me uh, shatter the uh, labor record for points last year. So, 
Not uh, bad, right? That, I did that use, was, that was if you want an advertisement, I did use ATC projections for that. <laughs> there you go. There you go. They they do work somehow. Uh, all right, Ruben, <laughs> what about you? What's going on with you? You can follow me on Twitter at MLB Injury Guru, where I tweet out injury updates. Next up, how people are faring during the spring. You can also catch my in-season article on Rotoboard discussing all the injuries and the next man up. All right, I'm Ariel Cohen. You can read my stuff over at Fangraphs, over at Rotoballer. ATC projections are up on those sites as well as CBS Sportsline. We're now also on PitcherList. We're everywhere, so check them all out. I'm on Twitter at ATCNY, and, of course, you can listen to me right here on the Beat the Shift podcast each and every week. All right, once again, thank you so much to Eno Saris from The Athletic and from all of us here at Beat the Shift. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangress. Follow us on Twitter at beat underscore shift underscore pod.